0: This afternoon, we confess together the canons of Dorthead 5, Articles 1 through 3. Let's confess these together. Those people whom God, according to His purpose, calls into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, and regenerates by the Holy Spirit, He has also set free from the reign and slavery of sin, though in this life not entirely from the flesh and from the body of sin. Hence, daily sins of weakness arise and blemishes cling even to the best works of God's people, giving them continual cause to humble themselves before God, to flee for refuge to Christ crucified, to put the flesh to death more and more by the spirit of supplication and by holy exercises of godliness, and to strain toward the goal of perfection until they are freed from this body of death and reign with the Lamb of God in heaven. Because of these remnants of sin dwelling in them, and also because of the temptations of the world and Satan, those who have been converted cannot remain standing in this grace if left to their own resources. But God is faithful, mercifully strengthening them in the grace once conferred on them and powerfully preserving them into the end. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we do confess that we need your grace to stand, that we would fall otherwise in a moment. Uh, Please give your grace to us now as we hear your word preached. Um, Reveal to us our sin, and reveal to us the promises of the gospel in Christ. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. The scripture lesson comes from Romans chapter 7, verses 7 through 25. That can be found on page... Nine forty three of your Pew Bibles. Once again, the scripture we're reading comes from Romans, Chapter Seven, verses seven through twenty five. Hear now God's word. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, would not have known sin, would not have known what it is to covet, if the law had said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Apart from the law, sin lies dead. in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Congregation of Christ and Friends. We begin the fifth and final head of doctrine in the canons of Dort. And the subject is on the perseverance of the saints. By saints we do not mean some alleged super spiritual people whom we canonize because they live such godly lives. But rather we mean you, ordinary Christians who have been imputed with the righteousness of Christ yet are still sinful and wicked. This last head of doctrine is full of encouragement and comfort that God is the one who persever- perseveres you or preserves you until your death, at which time you will be glorified, made just like Jesus Christ. The doctrine of perseverance of the saints is sometimes put like this You can't lose your salvation. What some mean by this is that once you've been justified and regenerated, that can't change, and that is true. But this meaning gets lost as people mix in wrong ideas about license, the human will, and perfectionism. For instance, some will say, Hey, I accepted Jesus Christ into my life, and so I can continue to rob banks and lie about it. I'm okay because I accepted Jesus into my heart. Well, this person doesn't understand the gospel he allegedly embraced. Another example. I better be good for goodness sake. If I consciously sin knowing better and Jesus returns at that moment, I'm going to hell in a handbasket. I can't consciously sin and do that and be saved. No. If you have true faith and you are caught in the act of sin when Christ returns, Jesus will say to you, Well done, my good and faithful son. And that's the scandal of the gospel, isn't it? Now, that doesn't mean that Jesus would come back and approve the sin of which you're committing. He would approve the righteousness that He's imputed to you. But people say, No, I mean, if I were caught in the act of sin, I'm denying the gospel. No, not necessarily. You're sinning. After all, let's be honest. When Jesus comes back, He will catch every single person In sin, won't he? Unless we want to say that we're fulfilling God's law every moment of every day, of every second of our life, which we're not. Sitting in church, you're sinning. Because you're not loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving your neighbors yourself, right? So if Jesus were to return right now, all of you are caught in sin, as it were. Now, to be sure, there is a difference, right? I mean, somebody who's in radical sin, there's a problem but we say that they can repent of their sin and be restored. And this is why all these examples are why the doctrine of the church is so important to the perseverance of the saints. If someone thinks that they can sin away because they believe in the gospel, then the church of which they must be a part must act to warn them and even discipline them if they don't repent. Likewise, if a person thinks that he must be perfect then the church must preach to him that that's impossible. They must preach the power of the law to them so that they'll be convicted and believe in the gospel and not their own works. Further, the church must be clear about the definition of terms. When we confess the perseverance of the saints, we are confessing that the scriptures give the promise of security that one cannot lose his justification or his sanctification or his regeneration. He will maintain or maintain true faith to the very end. That's the salvation to be specific that you can't lose. But one can lose their position in the covenant of grace, which is known in the true visible church. So if one lives in sin and refuses to repent, one will eventually be excommunicated from the church. If that happens, then the person is considered to be outside the church right? Outside the kingdom of God, they're not considered to be Christians. John says this in First John two verse nineteen. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would not. Con- they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they were not of us. So that person has not lost his salvation, but never had it as we just defined it. That is, if some person uh, refuses to repent of a sin, even after the church has talked to him, has pleaded with him, has preached the gospel to him, if he refuses to repent and walks out, we say, well, they never understood the grace of God in the first place. That's the way the scriptures talk about it. But, if that same person returns to the church, then we can assume that he was indeed of us but rebelled for a time and has come back. In that case, the discipline of the church was done, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, so that his spirit would be saved. So all of this, you see, is why the the doctrine of the church is so important. You understand salvation and the assurance of salvation inside the true, visible church. That's how the church is to function on this earth. And the church says to people, look, you can't do whatever you want. If If you believe in Jesus right? Use biblical terminology. If you believe in Jesus, you rest on Him for your uh, salvation, um, you're saved. but That doesn't mean you can do whatever you want. You must follow Him. So the church, you see, um, oversees that entire process. Therefore, the church in its preaching and the correct definition of what it is to be saved is critical in this discussion on the perseverance of the saints. So in the sermon... We will first consider how sin abides still in sinners, Christians. And 2nd we'll understand the comfort of the perseverance of the saints. <clears throat> so the first point is so important to make, you can never make it enough, is that Christians are sinners too. Now, to be sure, Christians, those as in uh, people that are truly regenerate, have been made alive by the Holy Spirit, have been freed from the dominion of sin and death. So we have to be clear about that first. Romans 3, verses 21 and following. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation in His blood, by His blood, to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. You are justified by grace through faith in Christ's work. Christ's work to do the law and to suffer death by which His blood was poured out to cleanse you from your sin. Paul goes on to say that Christ's crucifixion stopped the reign of sin and death over you so that now the Spirit reigns over you. So this is all objective, right? The law of sin and death is no longer the case in your life. That doesn't reign over you, as it were. It's the Spirit of God who reigns over you. Paul continues in Romans 6. We know that our old self, our old man So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive uh, to God in Christ Jesus. Then Paul Paul goes on to say in Romans chapter 8 that because of Christ's work, you are now uh, indwelled with the Holy Spirit and led by the Holy Spirit, not by sin, death, and the flesh. Yet, the regenerate, true Christians, still suffer from the effects of original sin which we call the pollution of sin. So, to be clear, in justification, the guilt of sin is taken away. That is, original sin is no longer imputed to you. Why? Because your original sin was imputed to Christ, and Christ's righteousness was imputed to you. That means that God reckons you as righteous, not sinful. But your human nature is still sinful as a result of being born in sin. It's just not held against you, but you're still sinful. We call this pollution. So in passages such as Romans 1, it is clear that the tendency to hate God and neighbor is still there, but you're not in the flesh as in living for your own sinful desires to the end of death and hell. Rather, that end is changed to obedience and life through Christ's atoning death and resurrection. Therefore, while you are justified, Paul says in Romans 4, you are still wicked. That is, God has accepted you as His child, but you will be a sinful child until the day you die. After all, John says in 1 John 1, that you must be honest, that you are still sinners, you must confess your sin to God. Another way to put this is that the guilt of original sin is gone through justification, but the pollution of continuing sin in you remains and must be confessed to God. It is this pollution of continuing sin that causes all the grief in your life, right? This tendency, this sin, the reality of continuing to sin. and is that uh, which often throws you into doubt and misery. But it is relieved by the doctrine of justification and the doctrine of the perseverance of saints. So what do you do when you sin? You flee to Christ. You think about these doctrines. Well, the first three articles of the fifth head of doctrine and the canons speaks to the reality of remaining sin and the comfort of the perseverance of the saints. You must come to grips with the fact of your sin. You are still totally depraved. It's just something about people that want to say once they are in the church, they know Christ, that they're not really all that sinful anymore. Well, yes, God by His Spirit is sanctifying you, making you more like Christ, but just a little bit in this life, right? You're still depraved. You're still sinful. But coming to grips with this, as Paul does in Romans chapter 7, helps you to look to God and Christ for His power to preserve you to the end. After all, if you really think that you can do it, that you're not all that bad, then it's all over. Why do you need God's help? So in Romans chapter 7, Paul describes the ordinary Christian life. Now how's that for evangelism? You want to know God? Well, here's a good description of the life you would get. There's a struggle against sin that wasn't there before when you didn't know Christ. But the fact of the struggle says that God is at work in you to preserve you to the end. Now in in uh, Paul's argument, Romans uh, 7 verses 7 through 25 is a digression. First, in, se- in verses 7 through 13 it says that the law is good revealing sin in us. and second, in verses 14 through 25, the ordinary Christian life is one of a struggle against sin. No, it is not the victorious Christian life where everything is good, and you get whatever you want. It just isn't. It's a struggle. In Romans chapter seven, and the first uh, verses seven through thirteen, Paul argues that the law of God is good. So when you sin, whose fault is it? It's not the law's fault, Paul says, it's your fault. The law simply serves to convict you of remaining sin. It says, do this and live, and you respond by breaking it. I mean, even in your best efforts to love God totally and love your neighbor as yourself, you fail. It's not even close. There's always something in you that does whatever you do for your own purposes. Again, consider the argument here. Christians are still sinners who need to rely not on themselves, but on God and Christ for the comfort of their souls. Hearing the law and our preaching then keeps you in your place and compels you to flee to Christ. As Paul argues in verses 14 through 25, the struggle you have proves your sin. The fact that you are new creatures in Christ. Both things are proven. When Paul says that he is sold under sin, he does not mean that he is a slave to sin. He has said already in Romans chapter 6 that he and you have been freed from the bondage of sin and have been made slaves to righteousness, not slaves to sin. So what Paul means here in Romans chapter 7, when he says sold to sin, is that this is abiding sin in the life of the Christian. The pollution of sin. And is that you'll have to struggle with for the rest of your life. Therefore, he goes on to say in verse 15, that you do not do what you want, but you do the very thing you hate. Verse 18, you have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Verse 19, you do not do the good you want, but the evil you do not want is what you keep on doing. And parents think, oh, that's my kid. No, that's you too. I mean, you know what to do and you don't do it. When Paul speaks of himself as the one who desires to do good, he's referring uh, to his inner being, verse 22. He's not here speaking of some therapeutic, mystical inner person, but of the inner man which is being renewed day by day in contrast to, to the outer man who is wasting away, as Paul mentions in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 16. As one person has said of Paul's reference to the inner being, the mind which recognizes and is bound to God's law is in the mind, which is being renewed by God's spirit. The inner man of which Paul speaks is a working of God's spirit within the Christian. Therefore, as you find yourself wanting to do good, wanting to follow God's law, This is the Holy Spirit within you clarifying, interpreting, and applying the law of God for you. You, as new men in Christ, find delight in His law, as the psalmist says in Psalm 119. This is the law to which Paul refers in verse 23, the law of his mind, which agrees that God's law is good and perfect. Again, it's not the person, or rather it's not the law that's the problem, it's the person. Well, let's be honest. Only Christians struggle like this. Do non Christians have conviction or guilt? Sure. But we say it's not godly conviction. It's not godly guilt. They're much more concerned about themselves, and ultimately that's all they really care about. Not Christians when they struggle. There is godly conviction, godly guilt. So Paul says in verse 23 that there is a war in which you're engaged against sin. If the Spirit of God were not at work in you, then you wouldn't care about your sin. Isn't it true that sometimes when you struggle with sin, you think, I just want to give up. I mean, here it is, the same sin again. But there's there's something godly about that. That you're disgusted with it or frustrated with it. I mean, that's just human. And God and Paul here is saying that that is there's something very good about that. It means that you care. Now a lot of times you don't care very much, but that's the walk of faith, isn't it? And over time, God strengthens that faith, and you find your sin and the world and the flesh and the devil more disgusting. But again, the, the increments are very small. Over the course of this life. But the point of uh, going on and on about sin and our problems is that if we're honest about the reality and struggle of sin, then you will see from whom your strength comes. It comes from God. Article 3. God is faithful, who, having conferred grace, mercifully confirms and powerfully preserves them therein even to the end. So yeah, you have real dips in this life. As we go on in the canons, we'll see Well, how do we deal with egregious sin. Um, God perseveres, or rather He preserves you the whole way. As one theologian has said, the Reformed do not consider the perseverance of the saints as being, first of all, a disposition or activity of the believer. Though they certainly believe that man cooperates in it just as he does in sanctification. It is, strictly speaking, not man, but God who preserves. Perseverance may be defined as that continuous operation of the Holy Spirit in the believer by which the work of divine grace that is begun in the heart is continued and brought to completion. It is because God never forsakes His work that believers continue to stand to the very end. This is a stark contrast to popular notions about this. If you don't stand, if you don't try, if you don't give it your all, if you're not really good and show this sort of progress in the Christian life, then it's not going to work. No. It's God working in you. Yes, as this theologian says, you cooperate, you care. But God is the one who gives you that grace and power. It's like raising our kids. I mean, we we show them new things, riding a bike or whatever, They think, wow, look what I'm doing all by myself. No, not really. Your parents behind you, kind of holding you through the process. Sure, they have to care and they cooperate, but the parent has the power. We're just like we're just like little kids. We need God to sustain us. But the difference is He can never let go, right? Then we're toast. So to finish, listen to some of the verses that we'll cover over the following weeks that give you this comfort of God preserving you. John 10. Jesus says, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. 1 Corinthians 1. Who will sustain you to the very end, God that is, guiltless, in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son Jesus Christ our Lord Philippians 1:6 being confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ God begins the work in you and God finishes it 2nd uh, Thessalonians 3:3 but the Lord is faithful who will establish you and guard you from the evil one You don't fight the evil one on your own. God fights for you. Finally, 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 and following. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To Him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. In conclusion, the theology of these verses will be played out in the following weeks, and you will find strength in in God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Confessing your sin leads to confessing Christ and His blood and righteousness and the work of His Spirit to usher you into heaven on the final day. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, Amen.